This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at neweracap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. Welcome back to Memories with Voos. This is Episode 9 as we continue the 54 years of Steve Vucinich's time with the Oakland Athletics since day one back in 1968. And Voos, when we last left off, it was Tony La Russa taking over as manager in 1986 and Ricky Henderson beginning to establish himself and seeing uh, Jose Canseco win Rookie of the Year. And now it, it seems like there is a little bit of consistency finally coming back to the ball club, at least from the manager's point of view, with Tony in charge and then seeing some good young talent come into play. What were you remembering about as this club was trying to find its way back to postseason play and rebuilding the organization to the, to the great years of the 70s? Well, the thing is, you remember is McGuire, Canseco, Walt Weiss, Terry Steinbeck, Mike Gallego, they're all drafted and signed by the A's, and you can see them coming up through the system. Now, Gallego had a little bit of time on them, but then we, Tony Phillips basically came from our, through our system after a minor league trade. So all these guys played together in the minor leagues. You can see building the foundation so similar to, to the 70s, I know Charlie Finley, Oakland A's. Uh, they took on new life uh, with Charlie, with uh, Tony La Russa as a manager and a very able, capable st- uh, coaching staff and a believe-in-Tony type thing. And they knew Tony had her back, and, and uh, the front office uh, run by Sandy Alderson was very efficient. And we had a, we had a great time. So in uh, 87, we make a trade uh, during the giant Bay Bridge series, and we acquired Dennis Eckersley. And I knew Excellency was a kid in Fremont, and he's had a lot of success, but he pitched like three games against us in spring training in Mesa and, and in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and he was terrible. And I mean, absolutely terrible. And so everybody said, why did we get him? Well, we got him because he was cheap and we didn't have to give up too much for him. In fact, the guy, one of the guys we gave up for him was the son of the Berkeley cop that signed Ricky Henderson to a contract and scouted Ricky. But anyway, Eck comes over, and it's really just to give us some backup, a spot starter if we need him, maybe some long relief in a bullpen. Unbeknownst to us, when Jay Howell goes down after the All-Star break, that uh, Dennis takes over as the closer, and the rest is history. You, you talk about Eck and then making that conversion into the bullpen, and Tony LaRusso always talked about how important Dave Duncan was involved in making that decision. You knew both of them. As, as young players, and then you see them grow into different types of positions inside the organization. What do you remember about Dave as he made that transition from a, a catcher with the A's then going into coaching and becoming one of the premier pitching coaches in baseball? 
Well, I think the big thing was, and Dave recognized it, and maybe this is the beginning of the data analysis we're so privy to today, is accuracy didn't walk anybody. He had unbelievable control. And because of his success, and the umpires knew he was right next to the strike zone, he could pitch on the corner, he could pitch on the line, and he could pitch six inches out, and the umpire would give it to him because of his control. So Dave recognized that, and he, being an ex-catcher, probably saw pitching more than, say, an ex-pitching pitcher that's now a pitching coach. And so uh, Dave recognized that the guy that got Dave to start as a pitching coach was Jeff Torborg, another catcher who felt the same way. So uh, obviously Dave Duncan was as instrumental to us uh, as Tony LaRusso was. We all talked to Tony over the years, and the, the, the great joke is, how you doing today, Tony? I'll let you know in three hours. Well, as you saw him begin uh, his time as manager for the Athletics, he spent almost nine full seasons with the White Sox, became a manager at age 34 with Chicago, had some winning seasons, then things went sideways and became the ace fortune. What do you remember about the way that Tony ran the clubhouse ran the game, and really was in control each and every day. You know what, I've never seen a manager, and maybe it was Doug, I just didn't see it, take notes of almost every player's at bat. And you'd see him pull a lineup card out of his back pocket, make a little note, stick it back in his back pocket. It's something he wanted to review after the game. Everybody's at bat, every pitching matchup, and maybe, if necessary, talk to that those particular players that needed I don't know, I'd say some guidance, some confirmation that they did the right thing. And Tony was very hands-on that way. He uh, was had an open-door policy. Players could come in and talk to him, joke with him, and uh, he was fun to be around with. But when that first pitch started, he was as serious as anybody, and all he wanted to do was win. Briefly, in September of 1986, a young slugging first baseman comes to the big leagues by the name of Mark McGuire, and he's in a battle with Rob Nelson to kind of win the first base job for the A's going into the 87 campaign, wins it in April and goes on to win the, the Rookie of the Year and has the great home run season. Take me through watching Mark McGuire grow as a player. You know, he came up and we tried him at third base just because Rob Nelson was left-handed. But uh, you knew you could tell he wasn't going to be a third base. He was a great athlete. He just didn't have the quick feet to get to do that. So when he settles in at first base, and I'll never forget, we went to a series in Cleveland, and I think he hit six home runs in three days. And he really took off from there. It was like everybody shake their heads. McGuire, another home run. McGuire, another home run. And uh, he uh, he never faltered. He kept that same consistent swing all year. And he was a much smaller, skinnier person. I mean, if you see the 87 All-Star Game highlights, he probably weighed about 210 pounds compared to later in life. And he could hit 49 home runs that year and probably could have hit his 50th if his oldest son had been born the night before and he had to leave Chicago and not play in a 162nd game. You touched on the All-Star game and you know Mac makes the club and it's here at the Coliseum. What are the memories of, of, of everybody coming together for that? Well, we had uh, McGuire made it and Jay Howell did too. And Jay Howell being a reliever that was replaced, as we mentioned, by Eckersley a month later or so. But Jay Howell had had a kind of a, a bad a bad week and he gave up the tying run and the winning run to uh, in our last home game before the All-Star break and Jay made the statement now they'll probably boo me during introductions in my home park and only because he said that did the, did the fans do that but uh, he also ended up being a loser, <laughs> losing pitcher in the All-Star game it was a great, a great week of festivities here uh, not as big as what they do today because we actually played at home. There was no futures game. The skills competition did not really include a home run hitting contest. There was 
a throwing contest from the outfield. There was a catcher's throwing contest, uh, and it didn't evolve into the home run hitting contest that we know today's All-Star game provides. Boost, we see today's game, and the home run is something you don't even bat your eye at anymore. It's like, how far can they fly? We're talking launch angles. We're talking exit velocities. But back then, with the two Bash brothers, with Conseco and McGuire, playing together and doing the kind of damage they were doing, how special was that in terms of from other areas of baseball paying attention to the A's and that aspect of, of the kind of game that the A's brought to the table with those two big sluggers? Well, you know, at Conseco being noted the year before to be the first 40-40 guy. Funny story, so he mentioned that in Phoenix in the spring training of 86, and he said, yeah, I'll probably do 40-40. And everybody goes, yeah, 40-40. And then he looked it up, and nobody had ever done that before. There were plenty 30-30s, but no 40-40s. So Conseco had all-around ability. He was actually an average to better at average outfielder when he came up. I think he just got lazy. But then now you couple him with... Mark McGuire, and they decided to start the Bash, and so it was called the Bash Brothers. And those two got, they got a poster royalty, uh, looked like the Blues Brothers done on a couple of cop cars. It was one of the best posters ever done in baseball. And uh, they had a life of their own. Everybody knew who the Bash Brothers were all across baseball. We were starting to get some notoriety, some national te- televised games. And uh, everybody knew the Bash Brothers, and, and they were an exciting p- pair to be around. Those that have been around for a long time can remember those games at the Coliseum in comparison to what was happening on the other side of the bay. This was, this was the baseball epicenter, right, in the Bay Area, the, the Oakland Coliseum with the A's and winning baseball and exciting players and great crowds and great energy, uh, big crowds for the ball club. But what, what did you see from, from the A's organization from that standpoint as you looked around baseball and seeing how popular the athletics were? Well, being in contention, being in first place almost all of 88 – and we would draw really well. Even a Wednesday or a Thursday game was automatic 30 or 35,000. People loved day baseball here, and that was the evolution of the uh, elephant logo with sunglasses because we played so many day games here. Rarely ever a Saturday night game unless it was dictated by TV and maybe a Sunday night ESPN. But uh, we the, the fans loved us. People forget the one thing we were going against at that time we were going against Candlestick Park, and that was in our favor. We had a better stadium, we have better weather, we have easier access, transportation, whether you're driving, you're taking BART or the Amtrak. Um, and fans love the Oakland A's. They love the colors. Uh, they love the Bash Brothers, the winning. Another thing is, uh, people forget, Terry Steinbeck's stats as a rookie catcher in 87 were good enough to win Rookie of the Year all these other years, except for maybe against McGuire's 49 home runs. So uh, baseball was the headquarters in the Bay Area was in Oakland. Uh, the Giants were suffering. They've had some down years, and they finally they won a division in 87 and then obviously competed against the 89. But in those years building up to that, Oakland was a better place to be. And with going against Candlestick Park, we had a tremendous advantage. How different of a rookie of the year was Walt Weiss? This is a, you know, a, I wouldn't say slightly built, but he's a shortstop and he's a slick fielding defender as opposed to the last two guys that won the Rookie of the Year in the American League that represented the athletics with Conseco and McGuire. What did you see from, from Walt Weiss as he stepped in, the kid that uh, did a great job at that position? Well, thankfully for Walt, there wasn't a big bomber who was a rookie that year. There wasn't a rookie that went out and hit 320 or 330. So he was competing against stats more like his own, but his sure-handedness and almost gold gloves uh, shortstop fielding ability, the fact that he was on a winning club, the fact that he played almost every day, 
he got the rookie of the year and uh, deserved it. But like I said, I think the biggest reason was he was noticed as being you stick a rookie shortstop in a pennant-winning team, and that's, I won't say it's almost unheard of, but it's very rare. But uh, nobody else put great offensive stats like the previous two rookies of the year. Did you see, as as you watched Walt over the years, and he left and he went and he played in Atlanta, and all of a sudden he became a, a big league manager and now still coaches to this day on the major league level. Did you see that kind of baseball IQ from Walt? Kind of did. Uh, the question is, when you see that, you always wonder, do they have a desire to do it? Uh, nowadays, a lot of players make so much money. Do they want to take a step backwards and go manage in the minor leagues, the Arizona Fall League, or just be a coach? A lot of them don't want to because they've got enough money in the bank. But the thing about Walt is you knew he loved baseball, and he was always talking baseball, watching baseball. Um, and you could see that he had the capabilities of doing that. You just wondered if he really wanted to. What about some of the great pitching? Dave Stewart began to establish himself. Mike Moore's with the club and some other pitchers. And I, I won't say a complimentary guy because he was such a great hitter at third base, Carney Lansford, and what he made, meant to the club, this, this cohesive unit uh, moving forward and, and what that was like seeing this team gel together. You know, there's no doubt that Carney was uh, a leader. I'm glad you mentioned that. He came over in 83 in a trade for Tony Armas. There were some uh, uh, problems then. He didn't play the full year. But uh, he wanted to play every day. He was a great hitter, a good fielder, and a great leader. And uh, I think that was Carney's best attribute. He later became a big league coach. He was in St. Louis, and I think he, was, he managed AAA baseball for the Angels in Edmonton, Canada. And I, think, I still believe Carney could be a good big league manager if he really wanted to be. Uh, he was a leader for us. He was already on board when all these rookies came up, so he kind of taught them the right way, led them. Uh, I mean, let us into postseason, but he taught those guys the right way to play the game and how to act. Stu always talked about how it just seemed to be a, a great fortune for him to come back to Oakland after being drafted by the Dodgers, traded to Texas, and then being traded and released by the Phillies. And then two weeks later, he's with the A's in 86. And then, you know, four years of 20 wins or more shows how dynamic a pitcher he was when he got back home, he has done so many great things in this community. It seemed like this community has always brought out the best in Dave Stewart. And I guess it all started back then when he came back to the ball club. I think when he came back to us, or came to us, I think that energized him because he was from here. And he, and, and maybe he had a feeling, he'd say, it's now or never. I've got to perform, I've got to lead, and I've got to show these guys that I'm a viable big league pitcher and do it with consistency with consistency and he did and uh, I mean I remember involved in, in community things we used to do a thing where the Mervins people would give us give us or sell us toys at Christmas time at wholesale costs and we the Raiders used to do this and now they're out of, down in LA so the A's took it over and Dave Stewart would go every year with us to down to Children's Hospital and we wouldn't have to call him about the 1st of December. He said, hey, when are we going? He'd be calling us. So he really cared about the community, went to St. Elizabeth's High School, grew up in East Oakland, um, and s still uh, cares so much about this community. You can see that when he talks about things on his on the pre- or post-game show. There's only one team in the history of the athletics, going all the way back to Philadelphia in 1901, that won more games than the 88 team. That was 1931. They won 107. And the A's of that year of 88 won 104. And when you do that and you get to the playoffs, it's a little bit different back then because there weren't as many rounds. But there's pressure 
to get all the way to the World Series. What do you remember about finishing that year and then getting ready to, to take on the Boston Red Sox in the championship series? You know what? If you, if you can win 90 games and win a division, you win 104. But if you don't make it to the World Series, everybody forgets about you. It's just like who lost the presidential election except for the last time? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, who lost the Super Bowl? People forget a year or two later. So anyway, winning 104 games that year, um, we wanted to make sure we did it and finish it off. And we went went to Boston, and they had Clemens and Hurst go in the first two games. Of course, we had Stu. And uh, you wonder what we're going to get. This is the first playoffs for a lot of our guys, first postseason. And uh, we went back there and won the first two games and obviously came back here and won this game in three and four. Uh, it was a nice sweep over the Red Sox. We had a great club. Uh, but uh, we were a little bit better. We definitely played better, and uh, we deserved it. We went in the World Series against the Dodgers. How big a deal was that? Because you remember what it was like to go back to the World Series, 72, 73, and 74. Had not happened since that time when the A's got back to the Fall Classic. It was really big. I mean, I, in 72, 73, 74, he kind of took it for granted. We were so good. And then losing Catfish and only making the playoffs in 75. Then we made the playoffs again in 81 but did not make the World Series. So your ultimate goal is to make it to the World Series and obviously win, but it was so so big for us for going back first time in 14 years. Couldn't believe at that time that it had been that long in between, but, but and a lot of baseball had been transpired, good clubs, bad clubs, but now we knew we had a club that was good enough to win it all. So the A's play the Dodgers, and the A's are a heavy favorite against the Dodgers, and Tyler Lasorda is the manager of Los Angeles with all of his uh, bluster about Dodger Blue and whatnot. And I think when people sometimes think about one of the most dramatic moments in baseball history, which was the home run by Kirk Gibson, they think that ended the World Series. That was game one of the World Series. But uh, lead me up to that point and lead me up to getting ready for that first game and what it was like watching all that take place. Well, it's good to be involved in the World Series again. And it had taken on so much more as compared to when we were in 1974. 1974, it was kind of left up, left up to each home club to promote it, do whatever uh, on the field, do all the pregame stuff. And now it was all taken over by Major League Baseball. So it was a big thing to do. And, I mean, before one of the games, we had the USC marching band out on the field. Uh, uh, Mrs. Ronald Reagan was there to throw out a first pitch. Um, you could see the Secret Service guys with the mini Uzis inside their coats. It was kind of fun. Uh, but uh, come back to Dodger Stadium uh, after being away from there in the World Series 14 years was special. The Dodgers were uh, cocky in 74. I don't think they were that cocky in 88, but they did what we did in 74. They were just a little bit better, played better, and uh, you know you still got to play the game. You can't have just the best team and the best odds and the, the best stats. You still have to play the game, play the game together. So we go into Dodger Stadium, and we got game one, and Conseco hits a grand slam. This is after Mickey Hatcher hits a two-run homer in the first. And now we're ahead 4-2. People forget, we loaded the bases with nobody out right after that and didn't score another run. Score a couple more runs there, you might break the game wide open. Belcher would be out of the game. And then we go to the ninth inning, and that uh, gets the first two outs. It's almost like you feel like it's automatic. He gets the first two outs, and he walks Mike Davis, of all people. And then Mike Davis steals second. So now we know that, that uh, uh, another hit and we're in trouble. So uh, I was over in a home clubhouse meeting up with the Dodger people about their preparations, their plans, and travel coming up to Oakland in a couple of days. 
And I know Kirk Gibson for all his years in, in Detroit, and he was limping around. And to believe that he could even walk out to the field upstairs or anything, the way he was moving around the clubhouse, third, fourth, fifth inning when I was over there, is unreal. I mean, I don't know what they did to get him ready, did a leg transplant or something, but but uh, now he comes up and Eck gets him with two strikes and he fouls off a couple of pitches and then he flings that slider uh, to right field to win the game. and. Believe it or not, that was the worst feeling of my entire life. Um, not counting some family deaths or whatever, but it was the worst ever. And, and the place erupted and went nuts. And I'll never forget Dennis Eckerly sitting by his locker and answering everybody's questions up to an hour after the game. Media were coming to him. And he'd already done the press conference thing, but they still wanted to talk to him. And he was such a, he was a consummate pro. And um, then we lose game two. Now we go back and we win game three with McGuire's home run. And we actually had a chance. If we would have won game four, I still liked our chances because even if Hershiser sticks it up our butt for game five, now we go down to Dodger Stadium and we've got the pitching on our side. It's just too bad we didn't win game four. That's the one that cost us the most. So they win the World Series uh, four games to one against the A's, and you're wrapping things up, and you've got Tommy Lasorda there being Tommy Lasorda. What are those memories you know, behind the scenes? Picas behind the curtain, if you will, about making the, you know, the great Dodgers speech that a lot of people have heard about with Tommy Lasorda. Yeah, Tommy comes in and he praises his coaching staff, praises the players, praises everybody. And it's typical fluff from Tommy Lasorda, who's maybe the best fluff master. Now, I don't degrade his, his baseball um, acumen or, or his love for the game, and he was a great spokesman for the game. But there's also another side to Tommy Lasorda, and that's why I wasn't a big fan of his. But, and not just because of that, but... There was an incident in the 74 World Series where the World Series film came out and Scott Lasorda is the third base coach talking to everybody. And Ron Luciano is the third base umpire and says to Tommy, he says, God, you sure are talking more today than ever. Well, Tommy was mic'd up. And when the film came out, the World Series highlight film came out, he said, oh, I didn't know they had a mic on me. Well, I helped Tommy Lasorda put the mic under his uniform with the NBC tech. So, you know, Tommy... Tommy's Tommy. He's he's a fluff. Everybody, a lot of people loved him. I, I'm not a big fan of his, but I had to listen to that speech, and and I saw some of the players, some of the coaches roll their eyes at the speech, but because uh, they knew he was going to get all the publicity, which is fine. He's he takes the heat if they lose, and he gets credit if they win. But it was uh, kind of tough to stomach losing that series. And then Oral Hershiser came over to the home clubhouse, went around, shook everybody's hands, and kind of upset some of our guys. But oh well. So it wraps up the 88 season, and we will spend all of episode 10 on 1989, things that happened on the field and the earthquake and the response by the A's and then playing the World Series against the Giants. We'll get to that you know, in, in our next episode, but, but at the end of 88, looking forward, even though the A's lost that World Series, much like maybe a little bit to a certain degree like the 71 campaign where we know we're good enough as an A's club, we feel like we can be back. What was the sense about the ball club after the huge disappointment of losing to the Dodgers? Well, I think we had a chip on our shoulder, and that's why in 89, I mean, we went out and signed Mike Morris, a free agent, solidify the pitching staff, and I guess a little chip on our shoulder something to prove. We were really, really good, but if you don't win it all, it doesn't matter. And so that's why 89 turned out to be uh, our year. Uh, as we'll cover in the future, there were some key injuries in that. We've sustained that and uh, had a great pennant race with the Angels. And, and uh, But we had a chip on our shoulder, and we made some improvements during the winter. We weren't going to just uh, stay status quo. And um, Tony was 
upset we didn't win it all, as were all our players. Carney was the one that was upset probably as much as anybody. That's a good way to end Episode 9 with Steve Vucinich. Memories with Vuce, 54 years with the Athletics. We do it every Thursday on A's Cast, on A's Total Access, and you can hear the entire interview, as always, right here on athletics.com slash acecast. Stay tuned every Thursday with another edition of Memories with Vuce. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.